Well, what a wonderful day. What a wonderful Savior. Amen? Well, for the preacher, Easter Sunday is always an interesting task because you know there's so many different kinds of people here. Some visitors, maybe people who only come to church on Easter and Christmas, maybe people out of town, of course, all of the regular attenders and members. And everyone is bringing their own set of expectations today. We want the freedom to define this holiday according to our own preferences. For some, they're already thinking about the big Easter dinner or supper that they're preparing. For maybe some of the kids, it's the Easter egg hunt maybe they have waiting for them. It's about the candy. They know it's about Jesus, but really it's about the candy. Maybe you bring worries and fears and concerns this morning, and so you're distracted. One year, I think it was my first year here at the church, a man got up and left right in the middle of Pastor Andy's sermon. I chased him out to the parking lot because I was a new pastor. (laughs) And I, I needed a job to do. I said, where are you going, sir? And he said... This was not the message I wanted to hear this morning. It's not like it's Total Request Live and you put in your sermon request to the pastor. He came with certain expectations. He had questions he wanted answered, and it sounded like he already had the answers to those questions and he wanted to hear Pastor Andy give those answers. He said, oh, the economy is bad and we need to hear good news. I said, were you not listening? I think he wanted Jesus to emerge from the tomb with big bags of money. Or a new job for him, or something, I don't know. And I said, the empty tomb is the best news of all. It is the good news. It is what gospel means, the good news. We live in a culture that puts the ultimate priority on the right to one's own opinions and belief. We don't like being told what to do or what to believe. And yet that is exactly what the empty tomb is about, God telling us what to believe. This shouldn't come as a shock to us when we read the Bible and we see shortly after God created man and told him everything he needed to know about reality and his relationship with God, man was tempted by Satan to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which represented man taking the mantle upon himself to determine his own reality, his own definition of right and wrong, thereby not needing to listen to God anymore for these things. And man and woman did indeed eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and have passed that inclination on to all of us. We all want to determine our own reality. We have our own expectations of this world. We bring our own baggage to church every Sunday. Our own ideas, our own philosophies. And certainly our own standard of right and wrong. Adam, that day, became the first moralist. A moralist. Now, morals are good things. 
we think. But not all morals are good morals. Adam became a moralist. A moralist is a person that thinks he's good, makes up his own definition of what is good, and then is often busy trying to convince others of his morality and force people to live according his morality. Let me give you some examples. Environmentalists are moralists. They believe, I am a good person because I care about the environment. And if you don't care about the environment, you are a bad person. This last week, a group of people told some poor little pizza place owners in Indiana that if you won't cater a wedding between a man and a man or a woman and a woman, you are not good people. And they picketed and the pizza place shut down. I hope they reopen. And I hope people come and eat pizza for months and bless that family. ISIS are moralists. They believe what they're doing is good and right. And if you won't believe what they believe, you must either convert or die. Now, these are extreme examples, but I can contend this morning that the Bible teaches that all of us are moralists. All of us are moralists. And yet, the Bible also teaches us that man cannot be truly good on his own. So there's a dilemma. Jesus came to save sinners, and in our heart of hearts, we don't believe we're sinners. Oh, we sin once in a while, and for the most part, we do good, we believe. For the moralist, then, the empty tomb, it's really neat. It's an amazing supernatural event. It makes for a wonderful day with great music and and good food later. And possibly for a few unbelievers here or there who need to get saved. The empty tomb is good news for them. But I received that good news a long time ago. And when I hear about the empty tomb, I look back to the day I was saved, but then I leave the gospel there. And I don't take it with me every day. I go back to being a moralist. God got me over the hump. He got me saved. I'll take it from here. God has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Also in his written word. Man cannot determine his own reality. It must be interpreted for us by the creator of reality, God. Man cannot set up his own law. 
and then judge himself according to his own law. That's what we do as moralists. God is judge, and his standard is perfection. God came first in the person of Jesus Christ to the nation Israel, which was supposed to be God's chosen people that would live according to the word of God as a witness to the world. In the final days of his life, Jesus confronted the leaders of the nation Israel. We call them Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes, chief priests and and the elders. These people were big-time moralists. They were all about being good. And they truly thought they were good all the time. And believed it was their job to make sure everybody else was good. And if they determined somebody just could never be good, they were cast aside. But Jesus came and he asserted that they were wrong and they were misrepresenting God. They were painting a picture of God that was unmerciful and unloving. A God who only had favor on the select few who had their act together. The, the beautiful, successful people. And then Jesus came and he ate with tax collectors, sinners and prostitutes, and thieves. Jesus came to correctly interpret our reality. He came to show the way and to teach the truth and provide the life. He came to demonstrate how to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and how to love your neighbor as yourself, and to demonstrate to us that we don't do either of those things very well. And it was supposed to bring us to a place of humility, crying out for mercy. It was supposed to cut through our moralism. Certainly God wants moral people But what he really wants is holy people. And that can only happen through faith in Jesus Christ. In Christ, God sees us as moral people because he sees Jesus' perfect morality. The moralists judged Jesus and found him guilty of claiming to be God. Imagine that. It's the only thing they could find wrong with him. That he claimed to be God. Well, he is God. And so Jesus didn't deny the claim. They feigned great remorse and ripped their clothes to show how upsetting this was that somebody would claim to be God. You're dishonoring God. Shame on you. But really, they had anger in their hearts, hatred that the perfect example of righteousness and love showed up and exposed them for the posers that they were. They couldn't bear to be near true perfection and true beauty. And so they killed Jesus. Man wanted his own way, his own truth, and his own life on his terms. 
They didn't want a Savior because they didn't think they needed a Savior. But you can't kill God. On the third day, He rose again. You can't kill truth. I'm back. Truth has an interesting way of staring you down face to face. Truth has the last word. No matter what it is we think we believe, no matter how sure we are in our opinions, Jesus came to save moralistic people. Let's put the two words together in in almost a paradox, an oxymoron. Jesus came to save moralistic sinners. Any moralistic sinners in the house? He did not come to save righteous people. In fact, he said this in Matthew 9.11, When the Pharisees, the moralists, saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. It's in all caps. It's an Old Testament quote. These are the people who knew the Old Testament scriptures, but they misinterpreted the scriptures. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This morning, we are going to look at a well-known passage written by a rather famous moralist, the Apostle Paul. Paul was a man who was being groomed to be a leader of Israel. He was trained to handle the scriptures. He was zealous for people to think the right thoughts about God and about life. These all sound like great things. He was so zealous that he was willing to persecute Christians because of their false, quote-unquote, beliefs about God. But then Paul had an encounter with the risen Christ. He was on his way to go persecute Christians and throw them in prison. And God confronted him in the person of Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road, knocked him off his high horse, literally, blinded him. Ironically, Paul was already spiritually blind. Paul repented, accepted Christ as Lord. God restored his physical sight, but even better, gave him spiritual sight, great spiritual insight, and commissioned him to preach the gospel and to instruct the church. And much of our New Testament is composed of Paul's writings. In particular, this morning, we'll look at a a passage you're probably very familiar with, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles there, you can do that, but it'll be on the screen. During the sermon, I ask you to let God define the significance of the death and resurrection of His Son. Instead of coming to church today with your own expectations, your own questions, and your own answers, let God speak to us from His Word. He will set the expectations, He will ask the questions, and He will provide 
the answers. He's the one who died and rose again. He has the authority to speak on any subject on any day. But on this day of all days and this subject of all subjects, certainly he shall speak and we shall listen. We are going to meet a variety of moralists in the Bible which will help us to see the moralist in each of us. Maybe one of these characters will resonate with you this morning. First, though, let's meet Paul, the Reformed moralist, whom God used to write most of the New Testament. Here's a description of Paul before he was Reformed. Philippians 3, 4. I know I had you turn to Ephesians. Just look up at the screen. I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. By confidence in the flesh, she means if anyone has any good in them to brag about, if anyone wants to build his resume that I'm a good person, Paul says, listen to my resume. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Then he goes on to write, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Nothing in there about being a good person. Just knowing Christ Jesus. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. All those things Paul used to be so proud of. He now calls rubbish. Scubala. Excrement really is the word. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. Hard to be proud when you're dead. Dead men can't do good works anymore. We must die to this notion that we have anything to bring to the table in our salvation. In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. You read Ephesians 2, 1-10. to I bet if you close your eyes, you, you can recite this verse f- from memory in your head. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest But God. Beautiful words. But God. 
being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So the first question the Scriptures are asking us this morning is, are you alive? So, well, of course I'm alive. I'm here. I'm breathing. I think I'm alive. Pinch yourself. Maybe it's a dream. Pinch the person next to you. Maybe they're asleep. God determines who is alive. You have to be alive in Christ to be alive. Paul says to the Christian church, you were dead. This is our condition before putting our faith in Christ. You were dead. It seemed like you were alive, but it was really like the zombie apocalypse. You looked alive, but you were really dead. You were living life like everyone else, going about doing your business, doing your work, going to work, making money, buying stuff, buying food so you could eat, so you could go to sleep and wake up and do it all over again. And it looked like life, but you were really dead. And if you're not in Christ Jesus this morning, the Bible says you are still dead in your trespasses and sins. Notice he says, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. That is just a way of saying we did whatever we wanted to do, indulging the desires of the flesh, and thought whatever we wanted to think, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. This is what a moralist looks like. Do whatever they want to do, think whatever they want to think, according to their own version of what is right and wrong, their own version of reality. The problem is, moralists can't give themselves life. You can't do good works to get yourself into the kingdom of God. You can clean up your act a little, but it's only a matter of time before that sin comes through. And the Bible tells us that the good works we do apart from Christ aren't good works. They look like good works, but if they're not done to glorify God, then they're not good. They're done out of pride. Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Romans 3.20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Moralists hate that part. Free gift. Free gift. Everything I've gotten in life, I've earned. I worked for it. I studied hard. I arrived. I succeeded. And we come to the empty tomb and find out the greatest of all prizes I can't earn. 
It's either wonderful news to you or it bothers you. Well, how do I receive this free gift, you might be asking. I want to be alive in Christ. What do I have to do? Show me where I sign. Show me the hoops to jump through. Where's the checklist? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, that's it? Well, what else do I have to do? I'm not going to get any glory for just confessing and believing. That's right. Everybody's on the same footing here this morning. I don't care where you come from. I don't care who your family is. I don't care what you've accomplished. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, I confessed louder and believed more truly. We all have that heart of the moralist has to find some way, some way. I know we're all sinners at the foot of the cross, but here's you, here's me. Some moralists are the anti-moralists. They say, yeah, but I was a worse sinner than you. So somehow my salvation is greater than yours. Where Jesus said he did not come to heal those who didn't need a physician, but the sick. Doesn't that sound sick? Any sick people here this morning? I want to introduce you to a man named Nicodemus. He's a, he was a dead moralist. Formerly a dead moralist, I believe the scriptures teach that he was converted. He came to Jesus in the middle of the night because he didn't want anyone to see him talking to Jesus. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one could do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, reading his heart and knowing what question was really on his mind, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Nicodemus completely understood the teaching and put two and two together and realized, I can't do this. I was not responsible for my first birth. Nobody chose to be born. You just turn up in a womb and then you're not in the womb anymore and you're screaming and people are taking care of you. How am I going to do that a second time? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. For a moralist, these are scary words. All my life I've done good to reach the position I have gotten to in life. How am I going to attain the kingdom of God if it's something I can't do on my own? 
And then Jesus spoke these famous words to him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I would guess most of the people in this room have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. That's why you come to church on Easter Sunday to celebrate. But if there's one who doesn't know Him, whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Stop depending on your good works. It doesn't work that way. Well, it does, but there's only one who did the good works necessary to get into heaven, and that is Jesus Christ. And when you put your faith in Him, His account gets transferred to your account. All His perfect good works, His righteousness, gets transferred to your account, and all of your sins get transferred to His. And because the Father has accepted the Son's sacrifice, you too can be accepted in Christ, and He will make you alive. And you will begin to hate your sin and your pride and love the righteousness of Christ. You will be able to see new things in His Word that you've never seen before. You will hunger for the words of eternal life. The change will come from the inside out. Second question this morning, are you seated then with Christ? Well, what does that mean? Well, Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead and our transgressions made us alive, together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If you are alive in Christ, as far as God is concerned, you are seated with Him In the heavenly places, your salvation is so secure, you are there with Him now, seated around the table at the marriage feast of the Lamb. We are the bride of Christ. He is the groom. We've been invited. And we're there. And when you're seated with Christ, you take on a whole new view of the world, a whole new perspective Everything changes. Instead of you interpreting reality, you let Christ interpret reality for you. This is the mind of Christ. You begin to think God's thoughts after Him. You not only get a new position and a new perspective, but you you get new power. The power that raised Christ from the dead. We're singing about this empty tomb, this amazing power that raised Christ from the dead. God says it's now working in you to change you. Because your power to change yourself into a moral person was vanity, vanity. It was all vanity. This is a power rooted in grace and love. So you get a new position, a new perspective, new power, new new motivation, and a new purpose. A new purpose. Come on, every little kid growing up, his purpose in life is to 
rise to the top, to please other people, to win the trophy, to win the awards, to be top of the class, to stand out, to be special, to be unique. But when you're seated with Christ, all those accomplishments look utterly lame compared to Christ. Amen? I love singing the old rugged cross. Did a wonderful job with that, that quartet. That was amazing. Trading in all those trophies for the old rugged cross. Remember your childhood room and all the trophies and ribbons and, and you just you grow out of them. I want to describe for you two kinds of moralists who believe in Christ and they accepted Him as their Savior, but they're not seated with Christ. They're still living out of their pride. They don't let the gospel crush their pride. There's the smug moralist. The smug moralist leaves the empty tomb. Say, wow, Christ is risen. And he, he's risen with Christ, and he's in the heavenly places, but he thinks Jesus' chair is his. Sits down in the throne of Jesus. In his prideful heart, he says, I know God loves me. I know he died for me. Why wouldn't he? I'm just the kind of person that God would love and choose. He doesn't seem to realize that the dying for you is supposed to humble you. This person is very critical of others, has no compassion for those who still struggle with sin because he thinks he doesn't struggle with sin. And yet, it's like walking on eggshells around this person because you can never criticize them, not even in love. The smug moralist believes he has no need for grace. And so the empty tomb is not that amazing. No amazing grace there, just a really neat trick. Then there's the sour moralist. He's still sitting in the empty tomb. He's not excited. Why isn't he excited? Why isn't he full of thanksgiving and praise? He's upset that Jesus had to die for him. He couldn't get his act together. I mean, we should all be crushed that Jesus had to die. It's our sins that put him on the cross. But for some reason, a sour moralist can't be excited about that. Oh, we're not saying be excited about your sins. You know, hey, should I sin more so that God's grace will abound even more? No, Paul says, may it never be. Talking about the person who knows Jesus died for him but just can't seem to live the Christian life with any joy because every day is a constant reminder that I'm not good enough. No, you should be able to say, I know I'm not good enough. That's what's so amazing. That's what's amazing about the empty tomb, that Christ would die for somebody like me. If I do fail, and I will fail... God's love won't change. I'll always be seated with Christ. Yet, the sour moralist 
is often jealous of all the happy, beautiful, successful Christians. Why can't I be like them? They're often afraid of what people will think of them. The sour moralist wishes he had no need for grace. Meet Peter, the Apostle Peter. He was a smug moralist, right? Headstrong, not a lot of compassion for others, was sure that he'd be first in the kingdom. Before Jesus died, he gathered his disciples for a last supper, as you know, and removed his outer garments and put a towel around his waist the way a servant would and went to wash the disciples' feet. And he came to Peter. And Peter said, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Now I know at face value it sounds like a very humble statement. You're my Lord. You shouldn't be washing my feet. But you don't hear Peter saying, I should be washing your feet. No. It's embarrassing to the smug moralist that God would do something so humble. When you know you're not a humble person, acts of humility make you mad. No, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, like all night long, it was just bugging him that Jesus said that. I'm sure it would bug all of us. But even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Did I mention that even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you? Kept saying insistently, that's the heart of the smug moral. I, I would never do something like that. I'm a good person. I'm a strong person. How quickly, though, Peter ends up the sour moralist. Jesus is risen. Yes, Peter's excited, but then Peter, after doing some reflecting, goes back to his day job catching fish. The Lord shows up on the shore. Peter jumps out of the boat, swims to him. Look, we're not saying that Peter wasn't saved and that he wasn't converted, but we're saying that sin nature still hangs around. That pride still hangs around. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. This is killing him to have these questions asked. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved. Because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Three times he had to ask him because three times Peter denied him. Yes, this is an act of Jesus restoring Peter, but you can't restore someone until they're brought low first, right? If you're already up here, there's, there's nowhere to restore you to. 
Jesus has to tear us down and build us back up. I don't know, is that where Peter stayed? I'll always be the guy who denied Jesus three times. Great. Great. Instead of, yeah, I was the guy who denied him three times, and still he loves me. I hope I don't deny him ever again, but, it, but I am weak. He'll still love me. I won't presume upon his grace and deny him. But fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Peter is beginning, hopefully, to understand his own heart. Remember we said the sour moralist is often afraid that other people will judge him. You know, later in Peter's life, at dinner time, he wouldn't eat with the Gentile Christians if there were Jewish Christians present because he didn't want the Jewish Christians to judge him for not keeping up with the Mosaic law. Paul had to rebuke him. Peter, this is wrong. You're depending on works of the flesh again. I'm certain there's all kinds of smug and sour moralists in the room. I find myself one or the other, sometimes in the same setting. The two brothers in the parable of the prodigal son, both started out as smug moralists. I said, really, they're both smug moralists? I thought just the older brother was smug. No, the younger brother's smug too. It's pretty smug to say, give me my inheritance now, Dad. I'm not going to wait for you to die. And as long as he had a big bag of money and a faraway land, I'm sure he felt pretty good about himself because he could buy his friends. I'll pick up the tab. I'm a good person. He came to his senses, though, when the money ran out and he found himself in a pigsty. But remember what he said. If I go home to my father's house, I can what? I could be a slave. And I could work off my debt. Still the moralist, just in a different wrapper now. And the father ran out to meet him and greeted him and showered him with kisses and put a robe on him and gave him a ring of authority and sandals on his feet and said, go kill the fattened calf. We're going to party tonight. For my son was lost and now he's found. And the smug moralist older brother said, I ain't going into that party. That's not fair. I've done everything right. The smug moralist gets annoyed at all the people dropping the ball all over the place. They can't even get excited about the things God gets excited about. Well, later in life, Peter became 
a gospel-centered Christian instead of a moralist. God was changing him as he's changing you and I. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you. I think he gets it now. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. This is sounding like a guy who understands the grace of God. Be hospitable to one another without complaint as each one has received a special gift. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. He saw all of his special gifts as a grace from God. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do it as by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is a man who once asked Jesus, who then will be the greatest in the kingdom? And he thought he was the answer to that question. He gets it now. That God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Period. End of story. Well done, Peter. Third question today. Are you working in Christ? Notice I didn't say, are you working to get Christ? Are you working for Christ? Are you working in Christ? What does that mean? By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are His workmanship. As much as you'd like to believe you're responsible for the person you are today, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. We're not doing the good works to get Christ. We're doing the good works in Christ. Tired moralists, exhausted, frustrated moralists, are tired of working for Christ. I have to serve my family again today. It's my month to teach Sunday school again. But we must let Christ work in us and through us. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. The work looks exactly the same, but it is completely different between the moralist and the person 
overwhelmed by the grace of God. It goes from I have to work to I, I, I get to work. Meet Martha, a tired moralist. Now, as they were traveling along, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word. That's a good place to be. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Tell her to help me. See the moralist? Good people work hard all day long and they never sit at the feet of Jesus to rest. And if you're going to be a good person, you have to work just as hard as me, exactly the way I work, according to my standards. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. But only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part which shall not be taken away from her. Sometimes I'm the tired moralist. Sit at the feet of Jesus, Lord beckons me. I said, I'm very busy for you, Lord, right now. I have much to do. And I don't really want to do it, but I've got to do it because what are people going to think of their pastor if he doesn't get X, Y, and Z done? I would hope that people would want their pastor to sit at the feet of Jesus. When the the calling becomes a job, I know something's wrong. And I repent of my moralism and sit at the feet of Jesus. And I beseech you to do the same. Don't quit the job. It's the time of year everybody quits their ministry. I've seen it for ten years. The tired. And the light at the end of the tunnel is quitting. Or they're going to quit on their profession or quit on their marriage or quit on a relationship, don't quit. Go sit at the feet of Jesus until the grace of God overwhelms you again with love. Moralists are controlled by pride and fear. Christians are controlled by love. For the love of Christ controls us, Paul writes, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. 1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love. No, no fear in love. No fear that God's going to reject you because you didn't do enough. But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. Jesus took our punishment on himself. We no longer need to fear that punishment if we are alive in Christ. We no longer have to fear that we won't do enough to please others around us. And certainly, if you're doing things for me as the tired moralist, I don't even really like 
the gift anyways. Forget it. Don't do it if you're going to do it with that attitude. Your understanding of the gospel will determine your whole life. Of course, your eternal life, we get that, and let's not lose sight of that. But you don't leave the gospel at the empty tomb. You take it with you all day long until the Lord returns or calls you home. And so this morning I ask you, first and foremost, are you alive in Christ? If you can't say yes to that question, you are a dead moralist. Let the grace of God give you new life. You need to experience His justifying grace this morning. Are you seated with Christ, or are you seated on Christ's throne, or pouting in the empty tomb? If that's you this morning, you need to know His sanctifying grace Yes, you are an utter failure, but Jesus loves you. And are you working in Christ, or are you that tired, frustrated moralist? Working for who knows what reason, but probably to convince yourself you're a good person. You need to know the empowering grace of Christ. In short, the question is, is Christ living in you? Christ is risen, are you? That's what that question means. Christ is risen, are you risen with him? It'll make all the difference. Come this morning, receive the grace of God. Paul writes, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. You can drop the moralism. Christ already knows who you are and died for you. It ought to be enough. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are now zealous for good deeds. Not out of moralism, but out of gratitude and thanksgiving. We're going to sing Amazing Grace. We're all going to stand. And I'm going to invite any elders here this morning and Pastor Nathan. We're going to be up here up front. And if you need to experience God's justifying grace or His sanctifying grace or His empowering grace, come forward during the singing of Amazing Grace. We'd love to pray with you this morning. Nobody will know except God and you and the person praying with you why you came forward. But if the Holy Spirit is tugging on your heart this morning, come forward and receive God's grace. Amen. After the song is over, you'll be dismissed.